Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today on Thursday, June 6th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hello, everybody. Margo Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Good morning. And Paige Winfield-Cunningham of the Washington Post. Hi, Julie. Later in the episode, we'll have an interview with Dan Weissman, host of the podcast An Arm and a Leg, which is about why healthcare costs so much and what patients can do about it. The second season drops this week, and we at KHN are co-producing. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So we're going to start this week with some follow-up to last week's deep dive into the abortion debate. This week, we have reproductive health news from the administration, the campaign trail, and the states. Uh, First, the Trump administration on Wednesday announced it is ending federally funded fetal tissue research done by government scientists using tissue from elective abortions. This was a gigantic issue in the early 1990s when I was 12. I did cover it. Um, I was not 12. And eventually dozens of Republicans, including many who opposed abortion, voted to allow the research with safeguards to ensure that it wouldn't encourage women to have abortions in order to provide fetal tissue. The administration signaled last year that it was looking at this issue, so the news isn't entirely unexpected. But what does it tell us about where we are in the abortion debate when things that were supposedly settled more than 25 years ago are all back in play? Joanne. Well, it's some kind of like biblical cycle that we're going through. Um, No, it's a big deal. But it was not. It was interesting because there was clearly some push and pull here. They did not ban all fetal tissue research. They banned it completely within the NIH itself, the National Institute of Health. There there are research projects there which will not go on. Government scientists may not do it. What they, we call intramural research. Right, which does not have anything to do with sports. Uh, it's very. And then they also cut off a program that they were doing with funding at the University of California in San Francisco, which involved uh, HIV treatment research. And that's over. Other projects, and it's about $100 million worth, there are contracts with various universities and other established research institutes, they will be reviewed on a case-by-case basis. So from what we were able to tell and what we reported, there was a split and it was a, I can't exactly say it's a compromise, but it it did stop short of a total ban that there will be some of this research in the country. While they will continue, uh, Secretary of Azar has set up a commission and they're trying to study whether there are all scientifically valid equal replacement alternatives which have not yet been found. And which we've been talking about also for 25 years. Right. And and do keep in mind, it's, it's, you know, it's this tissue is involved in um, discovering several vaccines, including polio, chickenpox, hepatitis A. Uh, There's research going on in um, a whole lot of other, I think, blindness and and other... other, and they use it when they don't have an alternative. You know, I remember during the stem cell debate, which happened about 
12 years later than the fetal tissue debate, everybody thought that, you know, that stem cells, particularly embryonic stem cells, same ethical issue coming from uh, uh, tissue from elective abortions, that the stem cells would replace the fetal tissue. And that hasn't really turned out to be the case. I none mean, of us scientists are, are right. using None both. of us are biochemists or biologists, so I can't, I don't think any of us can explain exactly why they are not interchangeable. I think it has to do with they've begun to differentiate. I think that they've already begun, that they're not, the stem cells are like the most basic cells. And by the time even a few weeks into a pregnancy, there's some cell differentiation going on. I think that's the case. They're not interchangeable. So I think that it might go forward. We, know, we don't know what this case-by-case review will actually look at. There's going to be some kind of commission set up to evaluate things. Yes, we I, don't know what's going they, to happen. They, they, in the statement from the Department of Health and Human Services, they uttered the words Ethics Advisory Board, which has been away since the 1970s to for the government to basically not do this research because they'd have so much trouble. There was supposed to be one Ethics Advisory Board, and it basically never got constituted. So the idea was they could look at things on a case-by-case basis except that it turned into a way to just make the whole thing not happen. Right. Secretary Azar, though, not the White House, uh, I believe, is uh, HHS who would appoint the members. There is an existing, or at least there was, the Council of Bioethics, the White House Council of Bioethics. I think that still exists. Although yeah, I think it does, too. Um, and they have been active or more visible at times than others, I believe. But this was, still, this was an ethics... This ad- is specifically yeah. for this issue. This yeah. was an ethics advisory board specifically look but at fetal tissue Margaret research. Page may have something else they want to so. say. I just thought it was interesting um, in some of the articles I was reading about it, the research being carried out on HIV. And I think this is, was part of the research at the University of California. And they were having to use the humanized mice because it's the human Im- immune system that they need to be able to test. And of course, they're not going to use human subjects for this. And so that was why they needed the fetal tissue because they injected into the mice and then they're able to test medications for HIV. And it was interesting that uh, I, th- I think it was Brett Girard, who is a top official at HHS, who reportedly was one of one of the guys kind of behind this push for the ban. Um, and he's also the person who's leading the administration's efforts on HIV, which they announced earlier this year. They're trying to eradicate HIV transmissions, I think, in the next five to 10 years in specific geographic areas of the country. To go back, it's so basically you don't want to inject a human being with HIV to see if a medicine works. So what they've done is the, the mouse is still a mouse, but they've used this fetal tissue in a way that none of the four of us here could actually do, to inject <laughs> using this human fetal tissue. they have It's a mouse with a human immune system. That's what they've done. And people... That's a good clarification, right. Joanne. Um, well, I, I just think, I don't know how many of our listeners have, you know, more, no more, hopefully some of them know more science I'm, than we do. Having covered the politics of this for, you know, 20 right. some so, years, I still don't understand all the science. No, I mean, that's basically what it is. It's a mouse with a human immune system. So you can do things with, I mean, there we have listeners who probably don't like animal testing, but that's a whole other ethical issue that is not on the table right now. But the mouse ends up with an immune system like ours. You can expose it to AIDS. You can use a treatment. You can see what happens. And that's the, the gist of it. Um, I think it's, it's also just important to see this particular action in a larger context of administration actions around abortion and reproductive rights and reproductive health care. I think there is... Uh, a real concern about abortion, a desire to discourage it, also some squeamishness around contraception in certain cases. You know, there is a part of HHS and of the White House that seems very uh, concerned about this issue that seems to be very influenced by a lot of the anti-abortion groups. And, you know, this is one policy that may affect certain lines of uh, 
medical research. But I think to get to Julie's question about, like, didn't we settle this 20 years ago? Why is this back again? I think it's back again because there are a number, number of influential officials who ha- were uncomfortable with the compromise that was made a long time ago. And now they have the ability to try to undo it. What was the summer of the Planned Parenthood videos? 2015, 2015. David Delighton. Right. Yeah. It sort of bubbled up then because that was um, – it was right, whether, dis- whether Planned Parenthood was actually selling this what, fetal tissue. Right, which they talked about as, quote, baby parts, body, right. body parts. It's right. not, these are, it's tissue. And it's not fully formed, you know, I, I heard babies. some statements even yesterday, yesterday. describing this as, yes, body so, parts. as baby parts. Right. Yeah. And they're baby cells. <laughs> um, or they're not a baby. It's a, it's early in pregnancy. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but we should say that the scientific community is kind of freaked out by this. Yes. Um, the, I mean, they're the, trying to cure diseases and... And I think that a scientist who's trying to cure AIDS and feels that, you know, I mean, because abortion is so polarizing and people have sincere, deep beliefs about it, but it's transposed itself now into something that the people looking for a cure for blindness or I think cystic fibrosis might have been, I'm, I'm not sure. I think Parkinson's cystic, is Parkinson's, um, you know, other diseases, they're making moral trade-offs and um, there are safeguards to how this tissue is procured and how it's treated and you can't profit off of it and it, it is going to legitimate recognized universities. UCSF is a major, major, major world-leading AIDS research Although I will point center. out that when Congress settled this in the early 1990s, this particular research, because of the safeguards, had the backing of a lot of really major anti-abortion members of Congress. It was the whole, the effort was led by Strom Thurmond, whose daughter, who had a daughter with diabetes and, and was saying that, you know, this is, this is, as long as it's not encouraging abortion, there's no reason we shouldn't use this tissue. Obviously, Margot said, people are revisiting it. And speaking of things that are being revisited, uh, on the campaign trail, former Vice President Joe Biden is getting a lot of pushback from women's rights groups for his continued support of the Hyde Amendment, which bars most federal funding for abortion, primarily through the Medicaid program, eliminating the Hyde restrictions, which has been reapproved by Congress every year since the mid-1970s, is becoming a litmus test for Democratic presidential candidates and Democrats in general Again, why is this back, (laughs) Margot? I think this is sort of the flip side of what we're seeing happening in the Trump administration, where I think uh, people who are opposed to abortion uh, are getting more strict in the way that they think about compromising on issues related to this procedure. And I think on the left, in the Democratic Party, I think there's a little bit more polarization, too. We see fewer elected Democrats in Congress who are, do not support abortion rights. And I think that there is a push by the groups and advocates to say, you need to be all the way on board for our agenda if you want to run in this party. And I think both the fetal tissue research and the Hyde Amendment are good examples of the way that there was kind of there used to be a middle on this issue that will compromise a little bit. OK, we recognize abortion is legal, but I, you could still be a Democrat and say, I don't think the federal government should be directly funding those abortions. Women can still access them, but the taxpayers who oppose abortion shouldn't have to pay for it. I think fetal tissue research, on the other hand, is saying abortion is legal. These tissues are being produced anyway. Why not use them for scientific research? It sort of feels like we're in a moment now where neither of those kinds of compromises feels very satisfying to the most loud voices on either side. So a lot of Democratic candidates have really taken Biden to task for his continued support for what used to be, I think, a sort of moderate compromise. But I also think that 
this may not be as problematic a position for Biden as it seems. I think the public really is divided on abortion. I think that even the Democrats and some polling that I've seen are divided on the Hyde Amendment. And I think it's important to remember my colleague Nate Cohn did a really wonderful story a few weeks ago that the voices of the Democratic Party who we hear on social media, who are activists, who speak the most loudly, they are an important constituency within the party, but they do not represent the majority of the party. And I think that there are a lot of Democrats who are more moderate on some of these abortion rights issues who may uh, feel that Roe versus Wade should continue to be the law of the land and that legal abortion should be available. But they, like Biden, might feel some personal reservation about abortion and feel some squeamishness around the government paying for it. And so it will be interesting to see in the primary uh, sort of whether the activist, you know, pro-reproductive rights wing of the party kind of wins out on this or whether there are enough moderate, less strident Democrats uh, in the party that Biden can have this position and prevail. And, Margo, I think we should also note that most, I think virtually, I, I think with the exception of Senator Sanders, all of the senators that are running for president have voted for appropriations And the House bills, members. And the House members voted for bills repeatedly that included the Hyde language. Including which, this year. Inclu- exactly. <laughs> well, no, I think it hasn't come up yet this year. No, I think that— It's, it's I think come through committee. Subcommittee. Yeah. Right. It's come through right. subcommittee. It's, it's going to the floor, I think, next week. Right. But, yeah, I mean, the, to Marco's point, this was a rare point of agreement, this idea that— abortions that involve the circumstances of rape, ancestor of the life of the women is at stake, um, you see both parties kind of retreating from that, where Democrats want to expand uh, taxpayer funding for abortion to all circumstances. But then conversely, you saw some laws in the South. I think it was the Alabama law. And the Missouri one that just passed. Right, which would basically criminalize abortion even in those circumstances. And so, yeah, agree with you that both sides are really backing off. And then, of course, we should note the Democrats Democratic Party platform for the first time four years ago included a provision to get rid of the Hyde Amendment. So, And I would expect to see that included in next year's platform as well. From a practical point of view, the the, 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 uh, the HHS appropriation that, as Joanne points out, is currently moving through um, Congress. They kept it in because they just didn't think that they could win the fight. I think it's a difference between being in the platform and being part of the overt messaging and that as the country has gotten even more polarized over abortion. I mean, it's hard to believe that we've been polarized about abortion for decades. It is at a boiling point right now. We have not found compromise. It's hard to compromise on this issue. If there was an easy compromise, we would have found well, a people on it, the people that are activists on this, you feel, feel so passionately right, right. about it. There's no, even though most Americans are in the middle, if you believe right. that abortion is this moral issue where it's ending the life of a human, you're going you're gonna right. to be extreme on that side. But if you feel like it's a woman's choice, then you're not going to support any limits it's, on it. Right. And Hyde is one of the few sort of semi-compromise-ish things, but, you know, it was in the mid-70s. Democrats want to be able to sort of depict themselves as really full-throated defenders of abortion rights right now. Getting rid of Hyde is part of that message. I don't think it's very likely to happen in the next couple of years. And it goes to a larger question about the Biden candidacy, about just generational issues, and is he the right? I mean, there's a lot of goodwill toward Joe Biden. People like him. And yet there are also questions within the Democratic Party. He is currently the front runner, or he and Bernie Sanders are the front runners. You know, is he the right man for the moment? And we will find out over the next couple of months. But I think it's not just what did he say about Hyde, because he said two different things. That was part of the problem. He's on tape saying one thing, and then his campaign said, no, that's not his position. 
so that it's never good for a politician. It's just hard for me to imagine if the Democrats keep trying to retreat from Hyde, it's hard to imagine what the situation is going to be on Capitol Hill. Is every bill now going to turn into a fight over abortion? I mean, that is the very fight that halted the compromise between Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray when they were trying to stabilize the marketplaces. About, yeah, about the affordable care. All right. Well, one more thing before we leave this, because we talked about it last week. Uh, in Missouri, the state's last abortion clinic remains open, at least as of this taping. Um, as we discussed, this is not part of the abortion law signed by the governor a, co- uh, a couple of weeks ago, but rather it's an ongoing fight between Planned Parenthood in St. Louis and state health regulators who insist that there are irregularities in the clinic that are that pre- prevent a threat to women's health. Now, a judge has intervened and ordered the state to back off for the moment. What would it mean if we actually, though, ended up with a, with a whole state that doesn't have an abortion provider. Would that change the debate at all? Or are we just, it, the, the pot's already boiling, so what's adding some more going to do I don't it? think it really, I think it just sort of strengthens the message of, I mean, the law of, the abortion law federally has not changed. Roe versus Wade stands for now. States are passing these very restrictive laws. They're mostly being stopped by the courts, and the rest of them will be stopped. The lower courts can overturn Roe. They have to stop these laws. Access has changed. I mean, there are states, there are five or six states, I think six, that only have one clinic. Um, Missouri may end up with zero abortion clinics. It, it would stay home, stay open as a health clinic, but no longer do abortions. There are several states that have a clinic, but I believe it's like a circuit riding doctors, only there a few days a month. I think I, North, several North and like South that. Dakota and or a few both others. Those. So we already have very limited access in certain parts of, of the country. Missouri would become part of the victory for one side, danger sign for the other side. I don't think it really... I mean, it's just one more thing, you know, one more boiling bubble in this big boiling pot. (laughs) Can I say two two things about Missouri? Because I actually have been thinking about this a lot. So one, just as a practical matter, there are some clinics right over the state border in Illinois. Uh, and they already serve a lot of women in Missouri. So I think as a practical matter, if that clinic closed, probably those clinicians would go to this other clinic and it would grow and expand. I mean, I think this is an example just geographically where the distances that women would have to travel in order to access abortion care would not change dramatically. In some of these other states, it really would be much more cataclysmic if a particular remaining clinic closed. But the other thing I've been thinking about a lot in light of Missouri, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, is that it seems like there's a consensus among judicial experts that the Supreme Court is unlikely in the short term to completely overturn Roe. I mean, we don't know what they're going to do. They can do whatever they want. But that seems to be the people who follow the court closely, who know the justices, seem to think that that is not likely to happen immediately. They're more likely to just weaken it. But yeah, but the ways that they can weaken it have to do with this standard of what kinds of regulations of abortions or restrictions on abortions Uh, are considered an undue burden for the woman. And most recently, the Supreme Court basically said that a bunch of regulations of the clinic itself, that it has to be like an ambulatory surgical center, that the doctors have to have admitting privileges in a local hospital, all things that were proposed under the guise that they improved the safety of the clinic and the health of the women who were going there to prevent them from having some adverse effect. The court said, no, 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 there's actually no evidence that this improves health for women. This is just a way of making it really expensive to run an abortion clinic. It's going to result in a lot of closures. We consider that an 
undue burden. That seems like the kind of precedent that legal experts think is likely to change quickly. There, in fact, are other states that are doing these kinds of things, uh, not like banning all abortion, but kind of turning up the dial on the regulation of clinics. And I was speaking with one expert this week who was saying to me that as a practical matter, it may be possible for very motivated states, if they can put those kinds of regulations in place, to effectively close all of the clinics, even if a legal right to abortion exists. And I think I'm not in the weeds enough on Missouri to really know whether the allegations that are being made by state officials are legitimate or not. They're saying that there are serious health and safety issues, and that's why they want to stop the abortions in the clinic, and they want to you know, do an investigation because they're concerned about women's health. But they haven't said what they are. They haven't said what they are. and I think, But I think it, it raises at least the possibility that a state could kind of hassle a perfectly safe and well-functioning clinic out of existence. And that is a concern, I think, that abortion rights people have about even these kind of what seem like they're more modulated uh, changes in the current legal regime. Yeah. And Missouri is different than these these laws that have been passed, like the size of the hallways and, and the, the hospital admitting privileges and things that the courts have t- thrown out because it's not even – it's not state legislatures. It's just – it's the health department, the state health department is saying, you know, we're doing an investigation. And the state health department does have a right to investigate safety, not sure. just abortion, but, you know, that's part of their job is but safety the and quality. But the higher the standard, the easier right. it is for but them to come if, in and say your fire extinguisher is too many feet right. from the door. Right. you got to close right. until you move it. Right. You know. Planned Parenthood is very – concerned that this is the next wave because we've and, and the other thing I mean what, what Marco just said is that for quite a few years the um, conversation I think we mentioned that uh, I wasn't on last week but I listened I think we were some discussion about this um, that the it was about the health supposedly health and safety there's no pretense now in in Georgia and Alabama and Missouri it's about stopping abortion clinics they're being they're feeling emboldened by the change of the court and by the political climate and they are passing laws that ban abortion or ban almost all abortion it's not about the the safety of the the width of the hallway and whether you can get a gurney through or something. Or whether right. doctors have admitting privileges. All right. I really do want to move on um, because there is other news this week. President Trump is in Europe uh, for the 75th anniversary of D-Day. And during his state visit to the UK, he talked up the trade negotiations that are ongoing uh, while the Brits figure out what they're going to do about Brexit. At one point, President Trump suggested that Britain's National Health Service would be on the table for any trade discussions um, to fairly large outrage, I would add. He has since backtracked, but I thought it would be worth mentioning how often health is intertwined in these trade deals. And it often goes, I think, undercovered because trade reporters don't know very much about health and health reporters don't know very much about trade. But it's maybe something that that we should actually kind of take a look at sometimes. It's usually drug prices yes, that get into these, patents. right? Yes, yeah. um, it's patents. It's the, the issue that has been most... Uh, salander that we've spotted the most in the trade negotiations has to do with the length of patents, particularly for biologics, which are very expensive um, breakthrough drugs, um, whether it's five years or seven years or 12 years. Um, the U.S., including under the Obama administration um, and in, in the ACA, gave it more protections, gave these drugs more protection, more patent protections than many other countries do. Um, there, you know, So many trade negotiations have fallen apart and busted up and changed. I, I could not possibly tell you, you know, what the standard U.S. I, position is, but it's, it tends to be longer longer copyright patent protection, not copyright patent protection, than other industrials. Although it gets, it gets tied up with 
all the other intellectual property issues. Yes. But as sort of a, a basic, simple rule, the U.S. is usually pushing for longer protections than the trading partners. That's not the law school version, but that's good enough for us right now. Do we have the vaguest idea what Trump was talking about and that he said the NHS would be on the table? There are issues about partly supplies and devices and drugs and who negotiates for what and at what prices. And yes, but I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> so. No. Well, I mean, even he's backed off. I was just... NHS is going to be different after Brexit. And so it is open to new separate negotiations about devices and drugs. And there are American companies that want to get in there in a new way. Beyond that, I think we can come back to that if and when they ever figure out <laughs> when Brexit is going to happen and what it's going to look like. None of us are paid to understand Brexit. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> All right. Well, while we were on international issues, Paige, this week you wrote a very interesting story about the Trump administration's effort to curtail legal immigration and the importance of immigrants in the healthcare workforce. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, I thought this was a really interesting study. It was published in Health Affairs earlier this week, and it was uh, making the point that uh, immigrants play a disproportionate role in long-term care, in the direct care that people, that the elderly and disabled receive in their homes, and uh, that that limits on immigration could sort of have a, have a ripple effect in, in the care that people can get. And we're already facing a shortage in this type of care. You know, we have an aging population. Uh, we're going to need more nursing home care. We're going to need more in-home care. Um, and, and we're not so, making enough babies to take care of all the and old we're not people. right. And so, <laughs> although you are, thank you, Paige. It's, yes, I'm. I'm doing my part. Um, but I think the study found that uh, immigrants are 14 or 50 percent of the population, but 18 or 19 percent of healthcare workers. And um, so, I just thought it was really interesting as we, uh, you know, there's been a lot, a lot said. Trump's said a lot about immigration, um, even though there was actually the news this week that visas are being approved. Actually at the same rate as they had been, despite all of the rhetoric that we've heard from the administration. So I don't know that all of these fears are playing out yet. Um, but I think there would definitely be ripple effects in in long-term care if they were able to carry out some of these limits that the president has proposed. I think it's worth adding that, because um, I've done some work on this, a lot of doctors in rural areas are also immigrants because it's very hard to get U.S. medical school graduates to go to you know, rural parts of the country and, you know, be on call a lot and work yeah. hard and not get paid a lot and not be, you know, close to, to a big city where spouse and, you know, can, can have sort of either another job or a social life. And so we are disproportionately have um, foreign medical graduates, as they're called, um, providing what care there is in rural areas. And there's, yeah. I think, a, a big concern about what immigration, what a really clamped down immigration policy would mean for not just, as you say, the, the sort of the lower level workforce, but the actual MD workforce. And these, are, these are really high. Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say that uh, not only are these foreign trained doctors often disproportionately in rural areas, I think they are a really important part of the primary care workforce. There are certain medical specialties that U.S born and trained physicians just don't really want to go into. And it seems like there are a lot of foreign docs who want to do that kind of medicine, who are happy to come to the U.S. and do it. There's a lot of need for primary care. And I think a lot of health care proposals, both from Democrats and Republicans, recognize the need to potentially even expand the primary care workforce. So that is another place where uh, challenges bringing in more legal immigrants could be a problem. Although I, I think that the particulars of the Trump proposal uh, might reduce medical school graduate 
immigration less than the kind of uh, lower education, right? Because they're less trying to move to more of a yeah. merit system. I think I was also going to add that the immigrants that are healthcare workers do tend to be more qualified than their counterparts because a lot of times these folks will have medical degrees, come over here, but for different reasons, perhaps they weren't able to get certifications they need over here. They're not operating at the top of their degree. Um, and they also tend to be a little bit older than non-immigrant healthcare workers. So, um, so yeah, a, a group of really qualified people providing care. Um. They see healthcare interacts with every other piece of policy. So we've now touched on both trade and immigration, which is... Right, right on point. <laughs> All right. Well, that is as much time as we have for the news this week. Now we're going to play my interview with Dan Weissman. Then we will come back and do our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast Dan Weissman. Dan is the host and producer of An Arm and a Leg, which describes itself as a podcast about the cost of health care. Its second season begins this week, and KHN is a co-producer. Dan, welcome to What the Health. Thank you so much for having me. So you're doing this basically as a labor of love. Your reporting career hasn't been all about health policy. What made you decide this was so very important? Well, gosh, I mean, it's kind of all around us. And it was certainly a big thing for me. I mean, I'm doing it as a job. When I left my last job, there wasn't an obvious next job to do. And one reason for that is, well, I have allegiance to living in a particular place. And as you know, like that's uh, not an asset these days in a field like journalism. So I was like, oh, man, I might need a new career because my wife has her own business. And somebody had to have regular health insurance. And we decided to take a bit of a gamble. We should say you were in Chicago. Right. I'm in Chicago. And, uh, you know, somebody had to bring in the health insurance. And that's been my job. So I pitched her on this and she went with it and we decided to figure it out. But because doing the show like this just seems like there's an opening like this is we are not the only people with this issue for whom the cost of health care is front and center. It's foreground. And, you know, we're lucky in that that doesn't mean for us it's a kind of huge financial emergency or catastrophe. It just means that, well, gosh, we're kind of planning our whole careers around the idea of working someplace that will provide insurance that means we're not that no healthcare thing will necessarily be a, a catastrophe for us. And that seems like that covers a lot of people. And I started talking to people just saying, do you think there's a market for this show? And, you know, every single person, no matter what kind of job they had, no matter what kind of health insurance they had, was like, oh, well, let me tell you about my story. And I thought, like, I think there might be a public for this. <laughs> so what have you learned about healthcare and health spending that has surprised you most since you've been doing this? Obviously, you already knew it was a big burden for a lot of people. So many things have blown my mind so much that it's hard to pick one thing. And it's hard to tell anymore how much I was kind of ambiently aware of before in a kind of vague way and how much I'm like, oh, wow. But I think I, I have gotten a lot clearer in some of the reporting, some of it really from stories from Kaiser Health News, about the way in which insurance companies, and for a story I'm doing now, pharmacy benefit managers, add to the price, not just by having an extra layer of people who have jobs and some of whom want to make a profit, but that the the nature of the negotiations and of the structure that everybody, the roles that everybody plays in those negotiations really contributes to those sticker prices going up. And I, I, may, I may have been told that before, but getting immersed, I'm like, oh, oh, it, oh, it works that way. It's oh, really my. scary, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating to me. I mean, I worked for a marketplace and I've done other stories about business before. And so I've always been just like, how does it work? 
And the ways in which this works are so much weirder than anything else I've ever seen. So do you have a goal here other than to let people who are struggling to navigate the healthcare system know that they're not alone? Are you hoping to effect actual change? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think I think knowing we're not alone is already a big thing um, because it's terrifying for a lot of us. But I also think the more informed we are, the more we'll be able to advocate for ourselves on a micro level. Like now that I understand how this works, I might understand some I might learn some magic words to help me in a negotiation with my employer or with my insurer or with my healthcare provider. Or in making a decision, if I'm lucky enough to have choices of where to go, like how to try to look out for myself. And also, as you know, there's a great big political debate in this country about health care. And, you know, the last time there was big legislation about health care, I was told it was like, you know, more than a thousand pages long. There's a million details. And obviously, I don't think any of us through listening to a podcast are going to get mastery of all those details. But I think there's it's true for a lot of us that like hearing about all the all the terms of art, all of the proposals gets very dizzying. And to feel a little less dizzy by all of it, to have a few hooks in, I mean, I hope that's useful for people. So for those listeners like me who heard season one, what can we expect in season two? Two things, I think, primarily. One is we put out a call in season one asking for people to send in stories and people delivered. There's just an overwhelming response and it's really, really great. And the first few episodes especially are built straight out of the inbox. You know, the stories that that you'll be hearing this season are stories that people sent us. And every single one of them opens up great big questions. We're not just focusing at a micro level on like, well, this person happened and this person, well, this happened to this person and then this happened to them and then this happened. These are all stories that bring up the question like, well, how the hell did that happen? And we pursue it from there. So that's one. The other is we spend about half the season, the middle half of the season, starting to open the lid on this question of like, well, how did things get so expensive? Like, what are the mechanisms? Like, what happened here? And so we look at the prices of things like MRIs. We got some interesting, interesting examples about that with price tags from two listeners that ranged from $1,000 to $26,000. Um, with help from Elizabeth Rosenthal, Kaiser Health News Editor-in-Chief. And we look at prescription drugs, just asking, like, well, how how does this pricing work? And I learned some things that blew my mind about that. And then in another episode, we look at the price of insulin, which obviously is a story lots and lots of people are aware of, like how expensive it is. And it gets cited a lot that the people who discovered insulin didn't want it to be a commercial thing and reluctantly patented it and sold their patent interest for a dollar. But until I went back and did some reading, I didn't know their story very well. And it's an amazing story. And it has a lot to teach us about the world that we're living in now. So those are two big things, stories from listeners and these these explorations of price tags. So we have a couple of clips from the first episode of the new season. It's about a young couple from Minnesota named Corey and Caitlin and their excellent adventures with health insurance. Um, set this up. What happened with these guys? Oh, sure. They got a letter from their insurance company basically saying, we're dropping you retroactively for non-payment. Bye-bye. And This was a big surprise because they thought they were paid up. And it turned out they'd made a couple of small mistakes, essentially bureaucratic mistakes. The insurance company was in no way interested in hearing from them. So they were effectively uninsured and they were pregnant. Then the pregnancy ran into complications. So let's hear the clip. 
you I called 911. He called 911 and my first thing was we don't have health insurance. Yeah. Don't do anything. And we just got in the car as we're walking out of the house. The fire truck and ambulance are pulling up to the front of our house. They're like passing us, like walking out. We're doing one, you know, covering our faces. It wasn't us that called kind of thing. So this couple had health insurance and lost it through an honest mistake about an address. Uh, And their punishment was basically being consigned to phone tree purgatory, right? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, very much. They called for weeks and weeks and weeks. You know, everywhere they went, they were told, like, can't help you or... Oh, call someone else. And they kept getting bounced back and forth. Um, it was it was incredibly discouraging. And uh, I guess we're going to hear from Caitlin again. There's this like, you know, imaginary wall that we can't break through to be like, hey, look at this. This is easy. Let's resolve this. It takes months mm-hmm. of phone calls and waiting, going forward, going backwards, going forward, going backwards. How much time we spent. How much money how much, the, these companies spent yeah. talking to us, you know. Well, I'm not going to spoil how their story comes out. You'll have to go and listen. Uh, and if you want to hear the new season of An Arm and a Leg, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts, as well as on the podcast page at khn.org. Dan Weissman, thanks for joining us, and thanks for the reporting. Julie, thank you so much for having me. Okay, it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth. Uh, Joanne, why don't you start this week? There was just a really shocking and uh, beautifully told story in the New York Times by Ellen. I believe her last name is Gabler. Doctors were alarmed. Would I have my children have surgery here? And it's about the cardiac heart surgery program at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill affiliated North Carolina Children's Hospital, where it was so many things were going wrong that the cardiologists for a few years were just saying, why are my patients dying? And I I mean, a hugely respected program. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, UNC Chapel Hill is, I mean, my nephew's alma mater. Um, But I mean, it's a really good Basically, we think of it as a leading medical center. One of the things that's happened briefly is that some of these sort of both high status and high income um, centers proliferate to do things like heart sur- open heart surgery and, you know, amazing things we now can do of saving the lives of children that, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago would not have made it to their first birthday. But as there are more and more of them, as more and more hospitals want to do them, each hospital is doing less. And with this very specialized surgery, doing a lot of them, the volume keeps you good. And UNC was not doing a lot. Um, they were doing smaller than you might expect for a hospital with statue. And the, the cardiologists were raising alarms really vocally. And it took, and, and they were not getting, they were very concerned about the, the pediatric cardi- cardiac surgery. These were the heart doctors, not the heart surgeons. And they raised the alarm and it took, um, it took quite a while for anything to happen, including now they've opened an investigation after the New York Times reported the mortality rate was too high. Children who, it, just more kids were dying than you would expect in, in a high-quality hospital. Margo? Uh, I wanted to recommend an article from Christopher Rowland at the Washington Post. Also, it's uh, his birthday this week, so happy birthday. Pfizer had clues its blockbuster drug could prevent Alzheimer's. Why didn't it tell the world? And I thought this was just a super fascinating story about Pfizer has this drug, Embril, that's used for rheumatoid arthritis and certain other autoimmune disorders. And it appeared there was some preliminary evidence using insurance claims that it seemed to prevent Alzheimer's, uh, early onset of Alzheimer's. And this is a drug that's sort of nearing the end of its patent life. And uh, generics are about to come onto the market. Pfizer is uh, has already mobilized to start marketing a new drug in this uh, 
rheumatoid arthritis, autoimmune space. And they just sort of put this research on the shelf. They haven't pursued it. And the argument that they make about this is that they didn't think that the evidence was strong enough and they didn't want to publish research that was misleading. But I think what the article also argues is that there isn't a good business case for them to try to invest in finding out whether this hypothesis is true, whether Which this is, drug could prevent this disease. That's a huge public health pro- problem. It's a, you know, a huge potential new market. But because of the way, you know, we reward drug companies, we uh, give them a set patent life. They can sell drugs at a very high cost during a patent life. And then once the patent is gone, it is gone. They just, you know, what would happen is that this company, if, if they really thought that this was a valid theory, that they would have to spend quite a lot of money to do Alzheimer's trials to be able to demonstrate demonstrate to the FDA that the drug could be used for this purpose. And then, you know, effectively, there would be generic drugs that uh, all of the people could take that were cheaper than their drug. And so I just think it raises really interesting questions. We talk a lot about the desire to lower drug prices and the way that our set of particular incentives causes drug prices in the United States to be really high. But I also think this shows the flip side of that, which is that the very high price of drugs in the U.S., the very high returns that come to these companies uh, do incentivize them to study and and develop and innovate in new ways. And if you, when you take away that incentive, you can see that there are some things that are not so salutary for public health that might happen. Again, my sense of the research is that it was so preliminary that we can't draw any strong conclusions about whether or not this could be an effective drug for Alzheimer's. But you imagine that if they were at the beginning of their investigation of this drug and they had this information and they had, you know, 10 years of patent ahead of them, that they might have gone further down that path. It was just it was interesting because the conventional wisdom has been that the drug company that actually finds a drug that works for Alzheimer's is going to get very, very, very rich. And yet here's a large and rich drug company saying, yeah, too expensive. Well, because the drug has already used some of its patent clock up, although the drug companies are really good at finding new ways of patenting drugs. I mean, Truvada is a perfect example, the AIDS drug. Paige. Yeah, mine is uh, fighting the gender stereotypes that warp biomedical research in the New York Times, and it's by Joanna Klein. And it caught my eye because it goes to an issue I think that has gotten increasing attention over the last few years that uh, women are not studied as much as men in medical in basic medical research and so this article also points out that's true for animals which I hadn't actually realized it's like by a one to seven ratio I think it's male animals are in, in basic medical research and you know, those, those confounding variables of the ability to reproduce. Right. Literally, well, that's, and that's what it is. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, Joanna talked to interviewed a few scientists who um, who noted that in 2016, NIH and its Canadian counterpart mandica- mandated that all clinical research they fund have to include female subjects. But that doesn't necessarily um, solve the problem because a lot of the studies are still sort of male centric and scientists need to be asking a range of questions. Um, and, and the reason that female animals animals and and humans haven't been included in basic research is because scientists have perceived them as more hormonal, which can make research messier. So I just thought it was an interesting article um, because it, you know, it's an ongoing problem and not and not only in in the area of gender, but of course, also, you know, different races are not included as much in research. So 
I would just point out that the same 1994 NIH bill that codified the fetal research also required NIH for the first time to use women in their clinical trials. And it's still lagging. All right. Mine is from my KHN colleague, Julie Appleby. It's called Your Wake-Up Call on Data Collecting Smart Beds and Sleep Apps. And it's yet another way big tech is trying to help you by violating some of your most intimate data. In this case, it is internet-connected sleep number beds that give a new meaning to the Santa song that he sees you when you're sleeping uh, and he sees you or at least senses you when you're doing any of the other things that you do in bed uh, and reports those things in the name of making adjustments, actually having the bed make adjustments that will help you sleep better. If you're good with that, then great. I just think we all need to be aware of the privacy that we're giving up with the whole internet of things. Uh, So that is our show. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Joanne Kennan. At Sanger Katz. At PW underscore Cunningham. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.